coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. What we've found over the past several years of doing MDMA research and being able to run the protocol in a larger population is we're finding that our participants are actually looking for more integration than what we are able to provide in the protocol. The protocol has been written for this specific period of time for these specific number of visits. And then after that, a lot of the subjects are like, okay, well, now what? I would think that as we see more and more subjects, we're finding more and more subjects are kind of looking for additional integration. They're looking for community support. And what we're really finding is there's not a huge community of people who have participated in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for their PTSD. Some of them have kind of done this little crossover into the psychedelic community, which is, you know, where MAPS and its funding base really comes from. And some of them are like, that's not my tribe. The military vets and the police officers and the first responders and the people that we're seeing who are coming in who are like, I'm not part of the psychedelic community. And they have really no one to process and integrate with from their community who understands them. It's one of the challenges, one of the opportunities um, that we have as a community of therapists is to be able to provide well-rounded integration support that isn't solely based in the psychedelic community. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts, presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Today's guest is Erica Siegel, a co-investigator and psychotherapist for MAPS-sponsored Phase Three clinical trials for MDMA-assisted therapy. On the show, we talk about Erica's background in social work and how someone interested in psychedelic therapy can get started in the field. We discuss the MAPS protocol, including the cost for treatment. We discuss psychedelic integration and whether coaching is a viable path to becoming a psychedelic-assisted therapist. Finally, we discuss Erica's work with harm reduction from her time with the Zendo Project, MAPS Psychedelic Peer Support Organization, to her current project, NEST, the Network of Emotional Support Teams. Erica is a co-investigator and psychotherapist with New School Research, a sub-investigator on the MAP-sponsored Phase Three trials. In addition to her work in harm reduction at events, during the COVID-19 crisis, she is facilitating psychoeducational workshops on trauma and providing low-income crisis support to first responders and essential workers. Well, hi, Erica. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Eamon? Doing well. You're in LA? Yes, I am in uh, beautiful Burbank, California. I'm really interested in talking to you about your experience with MDMA clinical trials through MAPS. From what I understand, you are both a researcher on MDMA clinical trials and a recipient, a patient. Were you in the phase three trials? So I actually, I've participated as, as a clinician, as a study coordinator, and as a participant in three, in four different protocols since 2014. 
So I originally started working in psychedelic research with the amazing Dr. Charlie Grobe and Alicia Danforth when they were doing a pilot study at Los Angeles Biomedical Research here in Los Angeles in 2014 and 2015. And that was the pilot study for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to treat anxiety in autistic adults. And so I worked as the study coordinator on that for uh, about two years and then went through the MAPS training program to become an MDMA-assisted psychotherapist. And in that training program for phase three, um, MAPS was training about 100 therapists. I was in that pool of therapists. And so I was a clinician on MP16, which was an open label MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to treat PTSD study that took place two-ish years ago. And then I also, um, as part of the training protocol, got to be a participant in a training protocol that was for therapists to have an experience of what it's like to have a medicine session and what it's like to have a placebo session. And I participated in that in the summer of 2018. And the facilitators on that were Marcella and Bruce in Boulder, Colorado. And then I also work on phase three here in Los Angeles with a research institute called New School Research that we all founded together in LA a couple of years ago as we were going through the training program together. You've done a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. It's, it's a very full six years since, since you first did the autism study. What was your background that first got you involved in that? Had you trained as a, in any kind of traditional therapy modalities or how did you first become involved in MDMA research? Sure. I am a licensed clinical social worker, so I'm a licensed trained therapist. I finished my uh, master's in social work in 2010. And I moved to Santa Cruz for an internship in 2011. I was working with Family Services Agency in downtown Santa Cruz when I met a couple of people who worked for MAPS. And they kind of, they were like, hey, you seem psychedelically minded and a trained therapist. Have you heard of the Zendo Project? And I became involved volunteering with MAPS, tabling at events, and then eventually volunteering and then working with the Zendo Project for the past several years as I was going through this. And so when I became a social worker, when I got my master's, I actually, I wanted to go into policy and nonprofit management and like community design. So I thought that I was going in that direction. And then when I finished, decided to do my clinical hours and started getting involved as just a a regular therapist, clinical social worker, working um, with low-income populations and things like that. And then eventually was fascinated with working with people in altered states, specifically working with uh, people in crisis and altered states. And then slowly over the past several years, got involved in research, volunteered in research, and then got trained as a therapist. And now I work as a MDMA-assisted psychotherapist here in L.A., your journey is a great expression of how it's all the little steps that bring you to where you want to be. 
And I think there's a lot of people right now who are really inspired by psychedelic therapy and want to get involved. And there's some things that are sort of generally known. There's the, the certificate at CIIS. There's volunteering with potentially with MAPS, with sitting with the Zendo Project or, or with the harm reduction outfit that you yourself have founded, which is NEST. We can talk about that. Yeah. We'll talk about that at the end of our conversation. Sure, today. absolutely. Just based on your life, what what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out and is inspired to someday become a psychedelic therapist? Where, where would you in, invite them to start? I would invite them to start with really thinking kind of about the nitty gritty of what psychedelic therapy is, which is being able to hold a strong container for somebody who is experiencing extreme crisis for an extended period of time. There are lots of people out there that, you know, think, oh my God, I want to be a psychedelic therapist or, oh, like when my friends have experimented with recreational psychedelics, I'm the person that they always come to. I feel like I would be great at being a psychedelic therapist. I hear that a lot. I hear that exact story a lot. I think I felt that exact story before I started volunteering as a trip sitter. As I was like, people always come to me. I'd be great at this. I'd be great at this. And then I'll be like, great. How do you feel about like government paperwork and like and and holding space for like a significant eight hour period of time without taking breaks and really being able to kind of hold that space. And then you talk to some therapists and they're like, absolutely not. That's not what I want to do. I don't want to hold space for that long. Like that seems scary working with, you know, really high risk populations and things like that. That's legally scary to work with for a lot of people. And so when you come down to kind of like from the fantasy of like, Hey, I'm, I feel like I would be really great at this and recognize that kind of 90, 95% of the actual work that you're doing is like psychotherapy integration and like a honed skill that you get by, you know, going to school, getting licensed, like doing these higher education programs and really immersing yourself in psychotherapy and clinical work. And, and that in itself is the majority of the work that we do. And so it's really being able to help create safety plans and hold space for integration and, and know that some of, your, some of the people that you're going to see are going to get worse before they get better. And some of the people that you see are not going to energetically match with you. And like, you're not for everyone and your agenda as the like, you know, as we hear a lot of people who are trip sitters or shamans or guides in these psychedelic underground work or, you know, in the plant medicine world, you know, you get all of these people and you can kind of see some of that ego pop up in all of us. I mean, you know, myself, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not immune um, to having ego issues come up when, when we're doing work, but really being able to be of service and really being able to recognize that the majority of the work that's happening, like it's not about you, it's about them, it's about their journey, it's about your ability to create a container for them to feel safe enough to be able to go on that journey, but it's not your journey, it's not my journey. <laughs> I I remember learning that when I first volunteered with the Zendo Project, and that is psychedelic peer support, trip sitting, as you mentioned, is that it's it's just not about you. And I think in the psychedelic space, more than any other, perhaps, it's important to hold that container 
of space so that the person can have their own experience and you can trust that. Um, let's talk about MDMA. What is MDMA and why is it so efficacious for people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder? Um, so MDMA is a entheogenic psychedelic medicine that we're testing for the FDA um, to see its effects on people who are experiencing PTSD. And so some of the things that it does is it it kind of softens your trauma response. It can make you feel more loving. It can help you see situations with a different perspective, oftentimes with more empathy. It can also create kind of this like depersonalization of a situation. So if there was a traumatic event in which, you know, as somebody retells that story or re-experiences that story, they get very, very triggered. Sometimes MDMA can soften that experience so they can actually um, gain more insight, more clarity. And that allows them to stick with the experience, even though the trigger is very overwhelming? Yeah, in a sense, it allows you to view a traumatic experience from like a, a just a slightly different perspective. And so oftentimes, MDMA allows you to see your trauma from a different perspective, and it processes differently. It like kind of allows you to process it deeper without triggering what would be your normal trauma response, whether that's to shut down or fight or flight or things like that. It really allows you to kind of um, see your experience, see the, the traumatic experience from a slightly different lens and kind of allows more empathy and compassion to kind of come through while you're on the medicine. And then the integration is really kind of where a lot of the work is done. Mm. And what is the MAPS protocol for MDMA? The MAPS protocol for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is, so the study design, we can't really talk about the phase three study design since we're currently active. What we can do is kind of talk about what what has been done in the pilot and in phase one and phase two. And so in phase two, kind of the way that MDMA, the way that the protocol is designed is you come in, you go through a ton of tests to make sure that you're appropriate for the clinical trial. And mind you, I want to be very clear that there's a big difference on whether or not you can enroll in the FDA-approved clinical trial and whether or not MDMA-assisted psychotherapy would be appropriate for you once we're out of the clinical trials. The clinical trials, we're looking for a very specific subset of people who have PTSD that we feel would be safe enough and appropriate enough to go through the clinical trial. And so the the way that the MAPS study is designed is you come in, you have a couple of introductory rapport building sessions with your therapist team. For the MAPS clinical trials, all of the therapy is done in therapeutic teams. It's a team of two trained therapists. One of them must be licensed and the other one must be on licensure track. So when I started as an MDMA therapist, I was not licensed yet. I was still collecting my clinical hours. I was post-master's doing my internship, and I was able to work alongside my therapy partner, Nicholas Bruce, who I adore. 
and he's a licensed psychologist. And so he and I worked together. So the MAPS protocol is one licensed person and one person who is either licensure track or, or, or is training to become a therapist. And so two in the room all the time for many different reasons. Um, can, can you but, list a couple of those reasons why, why there sure. need to be two people there? Um, so there needs to be two people there for safety reasons, especially working with mind altering and mind altering substances uh, that are not FDA approved yet. We want to make sure that if there is some sort of emergency, some sort of medical emergency, that that there's enough there are enough people there to be able to call for additional help, stuff like that. So that's very important. I think for the safety for the for the subject for our patients, I think that they when they're in significantly altered spaces, they can have a lot of feelings that come up. Sometimes there are feelings of love and connection. Sometimes there are feelings of um, being unsafe. Like for example, if it's a male therapist with a female subject who is a survivor of sexual assault, having a male presence in the room might be very triggering depending on what comes up during their experience. And sometimes having a female in the room, especially if you have somebody who has a lot of trauma around their mother and things like that, that can also kind of be really triggering. We no longer work in gendered pairs. We can work, you can have two women in the room or two men in the room, depending on what the what we feel is clinically appropriate for the patient. And then also doing eight hours of continuous therapy is like an impossible task for one person. And so we need to take breaks. And when we take breaks, so we take a lunch break, we actually take two breaks uh, two like 20 minute breaks during the therapy session. And so there are these little bits of, of time in which there's only one person in the room what if we have to go to the bathroom and things like that. And so having two people there, we never want to leave our patient alone, our subject alone when they are um, in an altered mental status. And so there always has to be two people there because the experience is so long lasting. So um, you were, we were talking about the protocol and you were saying that there, there are two people present, one of them must be yeah. licensed and the other one must be on a licensing track. Um, tell me some other specifics of the MAPS protocol as it existed in phase two. And and just real quick, you, it can't, you can't talk about the protocol for phase three because there's certain like blind aspects of it that need to be adhered to. Is that the case? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so anything that is pretty much like on maps.org or mdmaptsd.com, whatever, like that is the extent to which we are allowed to talk about the protocol. The study design, I can say that the study design is very similar to phase two. And so that would be three introductory sessions and then an experimental session. And that experimental session runs we usually start them in the morning. They are required from the time that we administer the medicine. The subject has to be under observation for seven and a half hours minimum. And so we usually start around, you know, eight or nine in the morning and go all day long. And then the subject stays overnight in the clinic. And we have a night sitter that comes in, like an attendant that is uh, there and they stay in our clinic in in Los Angeles overnight. And then the clinical team comes back the following morning and we do a 90-minute integration session. And then we have two or two or three more integration sessions and then a experimental session and then three integration sessions and then 
uh, an experimental session. And then, um, so they go through three full day medicine sessions during the four month protocol. So it sounds like this protocol is likely quite expensive. Yeah. Uh, and can you, can you break down the cost of the protocol as, as you know it? So if you think about it from just like a layman's perspective of how much the protocol costs for four months of intensive therapy with two therapists and three all-day overnight stays, and pretty much, you know, it costs around thirty or $40,000 per patient. When you think about things like, you know, inpatient 30-day drug treatments, those are also around thirty dollars or $40,000. And so if you think about, you know, getting the amount of intensive therapy that you're getting, you're getting the specialized treatment from two ther- two trained therapists, and then you're getting three kind of full 24-hour overnight sessions. You know, when you add it all up, therapy hours, additional staff, medicine, it's going to be somewhere between thirty to forty thousand dollars, depending on you know what city you're in and what the rent is and what the going rate for a therapy session is. So, obviously, in New York and LA and San Francisco, it's probably more expensive than in the Midwest or in New Orleans. Um, yeah. A lot of the publicity around MDMA's clinical trials have been associated with PTSD in terms of veterans of military conflict, as there's an absolute epidemic of post-traumatic stress in returning veterans. I'm interested in your take on the VA's ability to pay this thirty dollars to $40,000 price tag for MDMA therapy and how that contrasts with the potential for people in the private sector to have these therapies and potentially have insurance pay for it. It seems like the price tag is pretty high. And so for a psychedelic therapist, how likely do you think it's going to be that insurance organizations or or the VA would be paying for this and therefore employing these therapists to do this work. Does it seem likely? I mean, it it does seem likely when you're looking at, you know, pretty much 20, you know, 15 to 20 psychotherapy appointments times two therapists. So that's actually, you know, 30 to, you know, 32 um, 40 therapy appointments and how much they bill and how much they reimburse for, for going through something that will take, you know, four to six months for them to go through. I think that they're already reimbursing psychiatrists and therapists that are accepting insurance at, at similar rates. And so I think the coding for it, the coding for it will be for specifically the three MDMA sessions. And so, you know, when you look at insurance companies and you look at the VA system and things like that, it's like they're already paying for the psychotherapy. It's really just kind of looking at the, you know, upcharge for, uh, for the MDMA sessions. Mm. In terms of these trials, how do you measure how effective this treatment is? How do you know that MDMA-assisted therapy is having such a positive effect on PTSD? We collect a lot of data when we're going through this clinical trial. We ask them 
you know, standardized questions about depression and quality of life, PTSD symptoms, what we have found in the follow-up studies that have been done in the pilot studies and phase two is that people continue to improve. Not only do we see a massive reduction in symptoms and an increase in, in quality of life, we also, we're, we're seeing that that effect not only is lasting a year, two, three years later, but it's actually improving over time. And so, so significantly so that the FDA has given MDMA-assisted psychotherapy a breakthrough designation uh, because the data has been so positive in the effects on treating PTSD symptoms. Mm. And when you talk about this effect that's getting better, that makes me think of integration. Integration being such a profound aspect of any kind of psychedelic healing. Because when you have this experience of um, an opening of your heart and mind in the context of a psychedelic experience or an entheogenic experience, and then you return to your life, those, those effects and feelings can fade if you don't have the proper ways of integrating it into your life. So in terms of the MAPS protocol, what kinds of integration processes are being offered? That's a great question. And that is something that is kind of new. What we've, what we've found over, you know, the past several years of doing MDMA research and giving, being able to run the protocol in a larger population is we're finding that the, our participants are actually looking for more integration than what we are able to kind of provide in the protocol. The protocol has been written for, you know, for this specific period of time for these specific number of visits. And then after that, a lot of the subjects are like, okay, well, now what? (laughs) And it's like, well, if it wasn't in a clinical trial, we would be able to continue working with this person over, you know, the next year or two and help them integrate. And the protocol currently is not written for that. And I think that as we see more and more subjects, we're finding more and more subjects are kind of looking for additional integration. They're looking for community support. And what we're really finding is there's not a huge community of people who have participated in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for their PTSD. Some of them have kind of done this little crossover into the psychedelic community, which is, you know, where MAPS and its funding base really comes from. And some of them are like, those are, that's not my tribe. Like, the, you know, the, the military vets and the police officers and the first responders and the people that we're seeing who are coming in who are like, I'm not part of the psychedelic community. They're, you know, they're part of the law enforcement community and they use psychedelics to heal their PTSD, but that doesn't, you know, they don't kind of like move into the psychedelic community and they have really no one to process and integrate with from their community who understands them. And so I think that the need for integration, the need for integration to kind of branch out into the, the non-psychedelic community because they're really looking for support and we are kind of struggling to find or they are struggling to find that additional support that they're looking for. 
And so, you know, it's, it's one of the challenges, one of the opportunities um, that we have as a community of therapists is to be able to provide well-rounded integration support that isn't solely based in the psychedelic community. Something I've seen cropping up a lot lately, and maybe it's been around for a while and it's, I'm just noticing it, is the, the role of integration coach. Are you familiar with integration coaches? Are they people who could be part of this? Could it be that if someone would like to ultimately be a psychedelic therapist, one step on the earlier part of their journey before credentialing might be in the role of an integration coach? Is this designation of integration coach potentially, could it be regulated in any way or could anyone just say that they're an integration coach? Um, I believe there are phenomenal integration coaches out there. There are phenomenal shamans and medicine practitioners and, and, you know, not everybody is for everyone. And I want to say that like in the grand harm reduction psychedelic world and landscape that we live in, there is a role for all of us to play. As the licensed therapist, unless I know that that integration coach is abiding by the ethical guidelines that my licensing board puts forth upon me and my clinical license, which is obviously not supplying anybody with any illegal substances, not recommending that people go to places where they could be harmed. I have an ethical license board, licensing board that I have to adhere to and coaches do not. And so I think that if you want to go and become a psychedelic psychotherapist, then you should go and become a psychotherapist and then, you know, do psychedelic work on top of your license in the container that your license provides for you. Right now, it's just research. Um, I'll tell you that anybody can call themselves an integration coach. And I have seen being, having been a part of the psychedelic community, I've seen a lot of people get hurt, get robbed, get assaulted by people who say that they're medicine workers and say that they're coaches and things like that. And there's no legal ramifications that you can take against people who are doing that work in the same way that doctors and licensed therapists, LMFTs, LCSWs, LPCCs are doing. And that's also not to say that there aren't licensed people that are doing unethical things. You know, it's a two-way street. There have definitely been some ethics problems in the psychedelic community, in psychedelic therapy world in the 60s, as there are going on today, I'm sure. And so that's not to say that integration coaches are not safe. Some of them are safe and some of them do great work and some of them have the ability to kind of know their scope of practice and know when they need to refer out and know and say, Hey, you know, I work with a psychotherapist and if, if, you know, mental health issues are coming up and they don't actually know what to do, they should be able to refer to somebody who has that expertise. Well, we're going to have a whole episode devoted to this particular ethical question. So that will be coming up on this podcast. Ooh, I, I can't wait. I know, right? Yeah, this is it's a really really important topic of conversation. Yeah. Um 
I want to I want to go to you and your experience. And one thing that's really intriguing about the opportunity that you've had here is that you've been given the opportunity to be part of this research, both as a practitioner and as a recipient. And I'm curious what. You, the efficacy of the MAPS protocol felt like for you as a patient. Now, you went through, I'm guessing that you went through a single session with all the associated integration pieces um, of the, or did you do the full four month? No. So the therapist training protocol that I participated in was a five day protocol. And so think of like those four months kind of condensed into five days. So day one was like all fill out all the testing forms and all of the things and kind of talk about intention setting and, and kind of what I need to work on and kind of really talk with Bruce and Marcella about, you know, where I was at, what my expectations were for what my worries were for the session. And then, and then the next day, either medicine or placebo, you don't know which one you're getting first. So you get to have the same experience of not knowing if it's going to be placebo that your patients have. And so go through that for me that I had my medicine session first. And then which was really transformative and nerve wracking. And it's, it's interesting to be significantly altered with kind of like two sober people just sitting there watching you. <laughs> and are you how much how um, much MDMA is uh, is being administered? So the MDMA that is administered, oh, I have to think back to. I think it was 120 milligrams with a 60 milligram booster at the 90 minute mark. But it might have been 100 milligrams with a 50 milligram booster. I actually can't remember. But pretty much like what would be like a full recreational dose. So this isn't a microdose. This isn't something that like is subperceptual. Like you definitely know when you're altered and when you're not. And, you know, you have, you have music playing. You have noise canceling headphones on and an eye shade. And you really kind of wait for um, the medicine to kind of guide the session. And it's true. It is a medicine-led session. It's a beautiful process to kind of see the medicine kind of come in and, and be the guide of the experience. And so it was really wonderful. And then the next day was a integration session. And then the day three was integration. Day four was placebo which I struggled with a lot. Placebo sessions are challenging. It's really hard to sit in a room like for and come up with kind of therapeutic content or just have experience for that long of a period of time. I was frustrated and hungry and tired by the end of it and like just didn't want to participate anymore and had to work with that shadow part of myself and and so I actually got a lot out of the placebo session as well. And then a kind of like an integration and closing. And really what we tell our subjects when we're working, which I strongly, I more strongly believe the participating reinforced it for me, which is the medicine continues to work after for forever. It really does. And it, ha it has had significant 
life-changing effects on me and on the way that I see my life and the way that I operate and the way that I interact with other people. It's really created a a big shift um, in me. And I was going to ask you if you're willing to share when you did the when you had that first session with the MDMA itself, was there something specific that you wanted to work on that you went into that session and said, okay, I have an attachment wound from my childhood or I have a traumatic experience and I'm gonna work on that in this session and then you know, and then the medicine kind of took you to that place. Or was it more like, well, I'm gonna take this and I'm just gonna see what happens and something naturally came up for you? Um, yeah, I mean, at that point in my life, I was going through a lot of transition with my partner in my life at the time. And I was, I was in a relationship shifting position in which, you know, I had recently gotten out of one significant relationship and quickly into another significant relationship. And it really gave me some insight and some, yeah, it was an interesting time in my life and it allowed me to approach those situations with more compassion and more understanding and kind of see things from a different perspective. It was really helpful. For the psychedelic therapist or aspiring psychedelic therapist listening to this show right now, what non-psychedelic training modality or inspiration would you recommend Mm, not necessarily would you recommend for someone else, but has been most helpful for you. So outside of like working with these medicines, studying them, your understanding of the culture around psychedelics, what other aspects, modalities, inspirations have been most helpful for you in your psychedelic therapy? Ooh, um, so the cohort of therapists that I went through and trained with when they were training for phase three therapists, part of that involved us taking some sort of continuing education in a different modality. And at the time I did a sensory motor psychotherapy training, which really talks about how we store trauma in the body. And so really the somatic, the somatic modalities, Hakomi, sensory motor, somatic experiencing, kind of figuring out ways. I I even, I love breath work communal breath work, holotropic breath work, um, which is a great way to have an experienced altered state without using substances. But I find that that community dance, five rhythms, anything that helps you somatically express will not only help become more informed about your body and the way that you somatically store trauma, but will also significantly help um, your subjects and the people that you're working with, because you'll be able to see different muscle tension and the way that they carry their trauma when they talk about what's happened to them in their past, the way that they heal, the way that they hold themselves. I think a lot of somatic work um, it comes up in the MDMA sessions a lot. And it's great to kind of have a well-informed somatic education to be able to work with those things. Mm, I love that. A lot of psychedelic work is around a subjective experience. I guess a lot of any kind of therapeutic work is around a subjective experience. I'm curious in the context of the work that MAPS did and how that would translate to psychotherapists themselves, what kind of metrics 
are tracked in terms of patient success. Let's say that you are running a clinic and you're seeing uh, a number of different patients and you're experimenting with modalities. What kind of metrics would you be tracking to be increasing your success as a therapist? Um, That's such an incredibly challenging question. Um, How do you measure your own success? Mm. Especially when you work with patient populations that might be extremely sick. Um, And to manage your own expectations around the work that you do. I, I, I try very hard to not attach myself to significant outcomes. And that's one of those things that you really learn when you're working in, uh, when, when you're training to become a psychotherapist in the many years of, of training that you have to go through, including supervised work. You know, you go through like what happens when you work in palliative care. You know, what is your outcome? when you know that the majority of the people that you're going to encounter are going are going to continue to suffer or die. And so when you work in a therapeutic space, it's a, you know, am I providing a solid container for this person to go through their own healing? And not, is this person healed? And so when we look at outcomes... It's great to be able to be part of the clinical trial that has significant positive outcomes, so much so that we've received a breakthrough designation by the FDA as a life-saving treatment. But for me as a therapist, it is the how good am I being in the room in that moment and knowing that I have no control over over my clients or the way that they are going, the choices that they make in their lives or the, their own individual path of healing. Mm. So I really appreciate that perspective because it must be enormously challenging in any kind of therapeutic relationship not to become attached to outcomes, particularly in a psychedelic space where it is such an intimate space with another person. I think that's a really... Uh, powerful invitation for the listener to be present for their patient in each moment without being attached to an outcome, which of course is a very sort of Buddhist approach to any kind of healing or serving another person. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. It's of course, I mean, you know, I, I, I love being able to get updates from uh, the subjects that I've seen in the psychedelic space. And again, you know, as a therapist, it's a, you know, if all of my, if all of my clients keep in touch with me over the years, then I have like everybody in crisis all the time. And so it's about setting good therapeutic boundaries and really being able to create Uh, a healthy goodbye, a healthy termination session and get some clarity around kind of what therapeutic support you can offer for integration and what you can't. I think those are really good boundaries to have, whether you're working as a psychedelic psychotherapist or whether you're working in a peer support space, being able to kind of let 
let the person who is in crisis or the subject have their own experience, hold the therapeutic container, and then have a good, solid, boundaried goodbye at the end of it. <laughs> mm. I'll make sure I'll make sure that we have a good solid uh, boundary goodbye at the end of this podcast. Say so now the podcast is over. Now the <laughs> podcast is done. No. Um, so I want to just take a, um, a moment at the end of our conversation here to just talk about what you're doing now, um, because you are involved in harm reduction at events, and that's actually when we first met each other. It was in the the capacity of the Zendo Project, which is Maps's harm reduction organization that provides a safe space for people in distress, in psychedelic distress, and perhaps more broadly in distress at festivals and similar events. And I understand that you have recently started your own organization called Nest that is doing something that was similar to Zendo, but perhaps a bit of an expansion of of the Zendo offering. So just to close today, why don't you tell us a little bit about Nest and what you're up to? Sure. So NEST is an acronym that actually stands for the Network of Emotional Support Teams. And oh, I didn't know it was an acronym. I just thought it, a NEST was a nice place if you're having a hard time. I know. I mean, so many, there's so many different meanings just layered on top of each other. Building a NEST, creating um, a festival NEST for your friends, for your nesties and besties and there's lots and, of and, puns. And, and, the bound, and the appropriate termination boundaries of pushing someone out of the nest. Right, exactly. Baby birds, time to fly. Yeah, and so I started Nest because I recognized that there was a gap in services. There was actually two gaps in services while I was working alongside the Zendo Project for all those years. And that was creating a good, supportive integration container for people who are doing this work. So the Mm. first responders and people who are providing crisis response services. And then also turn it around and um, go back of house and really provide emotional support and crisis response to event production workers and, and kind of like our internal back of house at festivals and events. I love the Zendo Project. I love what the Zendo Project does. I think that front facing psychedelic peer support services is something that should be integrated at every large festival worldwide. And so Nest was kind of started as a adjacent service to uh, the Zendo project, which would be, you know, additional training and support and providing that support back of house as well. And so we were very lucky to be invited to be asked to put together an integrated wellness program for Envision Festival this past year, which is actually, that was our, we met in 2015, which was my first Envision. My Uh, first Envision too. I was sitting, yeah, I was doing psychedelic peer support. Yes. And you had a fake British accent at the time. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, you know, it's some, it comes out sometimes, but you know, that was a, that was five years ago. It was a lot. I was a lot more British. Oh my god, a lifetime ago. ago. A lifetime. In, in <laughs> you times. were a lot more British. I was a lot more. British. And so, Envision kind of Envision invited Nest down to do an all-encompassing emotional support, emotional support with medical, emotional support in the sanctuary space, and really kind of integrating a lot more of the local resources, Costa Rican Red Cross, making sure that we had more locals integrated onto our team. And we were able to 
provide a really strong, beautiful emotional support container for Envision production. We did some compassionate leadership trainings with them pre-event, and then we were able to um, on-site services for seven days. We saw 2,500 patient contacts. We are crazy busy between both the medical and emotional support spaces. But what really Nest does is kind of tailor safety, health and safety programs for events. We work with Summit and Summit Series, providing a sanctuary emotional support space for them and for their events. Um, And we're just kind of continuing to grow as a consulting company in ways that we can help make events safer marketing and messaging that is harm reduction based for event production and also for their staff. So when they're doing onboarding for their build crew, lighting crew, boneyard, like those are the people that are still going through hard emotional times and they're actually working really hard and probably partying at night. And so they're the ones who really need kind of the emotional support, psychological support in these very high stress, high demand environments. Mm, Yeah, I love that. I love that you're doing that. How can people connect with you? How can people support you? How can people get involved in what you're doing with Nest? Well, so Nest is like on a little bit of a hold since Uh, Yeah, because everything is on a little bit of a hold. Because the whole economy is on a bit of a hold. Right. And so there are actually no events. I'm actually, I'm giving a workshop tomorrow, which won't go live on this, but on a little online festival, I'm giving a compassionate resilience workshop on how to be more resilient in uncertain times. But so you can also connect with uh, Nest Harm Reduction on Facebook. You can go to our website, www.nestharmreduction.com. You can email me at erica at nestharmreduction.com. And we're going to be developing some online trainings. And because Nest is really focused on back of house, we're also focused on providing emotional support for first responders. Mm, And so we are starting to provide online drop-in, check-in support for first responders who are dealing with stress and anxiety related to the coronavirus. And as our healthcare providers and our healthcare system continues to get more strained, we will be offering those um, services as well more frequently. Reach out on our website and we'll continue to update ways in which we can support each other through this crisis. Mm. Well, Erica, I have one final question before we say goodbye, which is I would love if you would just take a moment to speak directly to the psychedelic therapist or aspiring psychedelic therapist who is listening to this podcast and just give them whatever message, whatever advice, whatever words of comfort or inspiration you would most like to hear if you were embarking on a path similar to your own or were in the midst of something like that? What What would you like to say to the, the folks listening who are on this path? So I will give everyone on this path the same piece of advice that Dr. Grobe gave me when I interviewed with him um, in 2013, actually. Um, and he said, it was a piece of advice that his father had said to him, which was like, no matter what you do, just keep getting credentialed, 
keep doing the good work that you know you're supposed to do because those are the things that nobody is ever going to be able to take away from you. And so nobody's ever going to question your work if your work is always within integrity. You know, and Charlie said this, which is nobody's going to take you seriously unless you have a credential after your name. Mm. Uh, There are a lot of you out there who don't want to go through the treacherous, expensive years of graduate programs and PhD programs or PsyD programs and then, you know, horribly paid internships, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It's worth it. Go and get the credentials because to continue to do the work, you'll need the credentials if you want. And so that's, yeah. That's my piece of advice, which is, is continuing to continue to do the work that you are, that is in line with your integrity and yeah. And and get, and get those, get those letters after your name. Get those letters after your name. Um, Really, that's the thing that, that nobody can ever take away from you. Mm. and make sure that you are in like ethical integrity in the work that you do. Yeah. Well, Erica, thank you so much for taking this hour today to talk about your experience with the MDMA clinical trials and with all of your wisdom and insight in supporting your fellow psychedelic therapists and travelers out there in the world. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And it is, it's going to take twice as long for you to, to do, to like accomplish the goals of becoming a psychedelic therapist, there are no shortcuts. Mm. Yeah. And so thank you so much for taking the time to interview me. I wish it could have been in person two weeks ago when we originally planned it, but this works as well. So thank you so much. Well, and I'd love to have you back for another conversation when the landscape has changed a little bit and we can sit together and speak. So, but I, this Absolutely. was wonderful and and I thought that, I thought you did an excellent job and provided a lot of really helpful insight. So, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I look forward to future conversations. Me too. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.